following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Most of you are probably familiar, I'm guessing, with the game of Jenga. It was actually invented in the 1980s by a Brit- British woman by the name of Leslie Scott. And she was born in the African uh, country of Tanzania. She and her family played a, a game like this around their family table. And then in the 80s, she began to mass produce and market this game. She called it Jenga, which comes from our Swahili word, which she was fluent in as well as English. Kujenga is the Swahili word to build. And if you're not familiar with the game, essentially what you do is you play this game with other people and the idea is that you slowly take a block out um, of the structure and then you place it on the top and you try and see how high you can build the tower before it all comes crashing down again. In many ways, Jenga is a brilliant metaphor for the life of King Solomon, the third king of Israel and the third subject in the series that we're doing called Royals through the stories of the kings. Solomon's life, I believe, was a story of grace and privilege. And what I want to do with you for a few minutes is I want to walk through his story in the book of First Kings. His story takes up the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, and I want to survey my way through that quite quickly to show us how his life was this life of great privilege and great grace, where God met him and, and, and graced him again and again and again. For example, Solomon was graced with the throne of Israel. He was never meant to inherit the throne at all. If you go over to a later book, First Chronicles, and you go through the family tree of King David there, you find that King David had multiple wives, a harem of wives, and at least 19 sons. And we're not sure what the exact chronological order is of all of those boys, but Solomon certainly was not in the top six. So Solomon was somewhere way back in the pack of King David's sons, and yet it was Solomon who was graced with the throne of Israel. And interestingly enough, that was announced way before Solomon was even born. King David had a dream of building a great temple for Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem that he had made his capital city. But God uh, sent the prophet Nathan to talk to King David to say, no, you've been a man of war, and it's going to be your son that will build the temple for me. And in the context of that uh, prophetic word in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this outstanding, uh, unconditional promise to David. We call it the Davidic covenant, where God says that David's descendants will continue to reign uh, on the throne of Israel, and one day a descendant will come who will reign over Israel and the world forever and ever and ever. And of course, as we go through the Bible, we find that that descendant of David is none other than Jesus. But in the context of that promise, God says that it's David's son who will sit on the throne after him, who will build the temple. Now, that's the version we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But again, you come to this later book of 1 Chronicles. Here's what you read in 1 Chronicles 22. 
Yahweh says to David, but you will have a son who will be a man of peace, shalom, and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. And his name will be Solomon, which is built from that word shalom or peace. I will grant Israel shalom, peace and quiet during his reign. And he is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So before he's even born, Solomon was graced by God and actually named as the son out of this horde of kids that King David has to inherit the throne. So he's given, he's graced with the throne of Israel. But then secondly, very early in his reign, he is graced with an incredible wish. Yahweh appears to him in a vision as a very young king in 1 Kings chapter 3. It says in verse 5, At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. It's like at this Aladdin moment in the Bible where it's not a genie, it's God Almighty coming to Solomon, this young king in a dream, and said, I'll grant you any wish you want. Except you can't have more wishes, obviously. And what Solomon asks for wisely, it's not long life or wealth or victory over all his enemies. It's wisdom. He asks God to give him wisdom to know how to govern the people well. And God grants him, he graces him with that wish. He gives them outstanding wisdom. And Solomon, Solomon becomes known as, as one of the wisest men that's ever lived. But not only that, God also graces him as he steps out into his, his reign. He graces him with an incredible opportunity to lead Israel to heights they had never been to before. The rest of chapters 3 and 4 that follow the granting of this wish kind of show the evidence for the wisdom of Solomon. There's the story of the, the two mothers who both claimed that a little baby was theirs, and Solomon shows his wisdom in the way he judges that case. But then chapter 4 continues to show Solomon's wisdom in the way he, he governs the nation and, and, and sets up his government, which is much more complex and large than either Saul or David had. But then you come to this beautiful statement in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20. It says, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they ate and they drank and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt and these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all of his life. Now, the writer of Kings, and we don't know who it is, but is an outstanding author. Because what the, the writer's just done here is he's tied Solomon's reign back all the way back to the book of Genesis in the Old Testament and the great promise that God made Abraham, the forefather of the Israelite nation. This great promise that he makes in Genesis 12 to Abraham that he will give Abraham three things. Descendants like the sand on the seashore, the land of Canaan as their possession forever. And then thirdly, the promise that they will be a tremendous blessing to all of the nations of the world. And what the writer does here in Kings, talking about Solomon's reign, is he talks about the fact that the people were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they were in this land and had full ownership and rulership over it. In other words, 
the writer is trying to help us see that two-thirds of this great promise to Abraham have now been fulfilled as Solomon begins to reign. And so he's raising this question. Is Solomon going to be the king who leads Israel to be the blessing to all the world that it was meant to be? So one theologian, Thomas Schreiner, asks it this way. It seemed that universal blessing, he says, was just around the corner. He has this great opportunity to lead Israel to heights it had never been to before. In addition to all of those, the fact he's given the throne, given this gift of wisdom, given this opportunity to make Israel greater than it had ever been, he's also privileged with the job of building the temple. This thing that, that David desperately wanted to do, it's Solomon that gets to do that. The people of Israel had this, perm, this, um, this portable tent called a tabernacle that had been the place of worship that they'd taken all the way through the wilderness and the book of Exodus and then into the land of promise. But they'd never built a permanent structure of worship, a place of worship for Yahweh. And it's Solomon that does that. And the middle chunk of his reign, four chapters of 1 Kings 5 through to 8, are filled with details of this great project that Solomon is privileged to lead, the building of the temple of Yahweh. And there's all this detail through it, but the final chapter of that part of the story, chapter 8, is the dedication of the temple. And here's what you read in, in chapter 8, verse 10, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the, the cloud filled the temple of Yahweh, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of Yahweh had filled his temple. It's virtually exactly what happened at the very end of the book of Exodus when they finished building that tabernacle. The glory of Yahweh, which had been up on the top of Mount Sinai, moved and settled on this tabernacle, this tent of worship, so they couldn't even go in it. And now Solomon has built this temple for Yahweh. And the glory of Yahweh now fills his temple as well. It's a seal of approval from God Almighty on the work that Solomon has done. And then finally, as you come into the last part of his reign, chapters 9 and 10, what you find is as Solomon was privileged and graced with great wealth, with uh, prestige, with a growing reputation. And there is the story of the Queen of Sheba, this mysterious figure who comes to visit him. But she is only one of a number of rulers and philosophers and important people from around the ancient world that come flooding to Solomon. His, his story is a story of grace and privilege. And to top it all off, there's, there's one more part to it that's absolutely staggering. If you listen to Reuben's sermon two weeks ago, kicking off this royal series talking about King Saul, you'll remember that, that Reuben talked about the insecurities that all of us struggle with at different times in life and that the answer to those insecurities is that knowing and reminding ourselves again and again that we are beloved by God. Well, interestingly enough, that very idea was actually given as a gift to Solomon when he was born. Solomon, if you remember, was actually the offspring of David and Bathsheba. This horrendous story from David's life where Bathsheba was actually married to another man, one of his key soldiers. And David saw her and wanted her and pulled her into his palace when her husband was away. Effectively, I believe, raped her. 
and ended up murdering her husband and marrying her. It was one of the worst moments of King David's life. And Bathsheba gets pregnant with a child and that son dies because God can't be seen to have blessed this this despicable act that David had done. But then you read this in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and he made love to her and she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. Shalom, peace. But then it says this in verse 25 of 2 Samuel 12. Yahweh loved him. That is Solomon. Yahweh loved him. And because Yahweh loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet, the one who had challenged David earlier about his actions. He sent word through Nathan to name him Jedidiah or Yedidiah. Yedidiah is a Hebrew word that means beloved of Yahweh. And even though his parents, David and Bathsheba, named Solomon Shalom, peace, Yahweh gives him his own special name, a nickname given by God himself, beloved. See, Solomon's life is a story of grace and of privilege. Given a throne he never should have expected. Given a tremendous gift of wisdom and the opportunity to lead Israel to heights it had never been to before. He had the the privilege of building the temple that his dad David would have given his back teeth to have been able to do. He was given wealth, prestige, reputation, and above it all. He is nicknamed by God himself, Yadadiah, beloved of God. Solomon's story is one of the most stunning stories of privilege and blessing and grace you can find in the scriptures. Sadly, though, Solomon's life was ultimately dismantled by a series of poor choices and small compromises. So you look at Solomon's life and all of these privileges and blessings that he's given, and you think it looks like the stable tower that can never fall over. But what you find as you carefully read through the story of 1 Kings and the way his story is crafted is there are moments and decisions and compromises that are made all the way through the story that slowly end up dismantling this life that looked so good. So let me now walk back through his story with you and show some of the compromises and decisions, some of the blocks that are slowly taken out of Solomon's very life. For example, if we go back to 1 Kings chapter 4, this great chapter that's showing these, this evidence of his wisdom, one of the things it does at the beginning of chapter 4 is it lists his cabinet ministers, showing his great wisdom and setting up a sound government. So it says in chapter 4, verse 1, King Solomon ruled over all Israel, and these were his chief officials, and then it lists them all. And then at the very end, the last name on the list, the last seat at the table, it's Odinaram, the son of Abdar. What was his role? It says in verse 6, he was in charge of forced labor. So what? Forced labor. Suddenly, servitude has been introduced. A sense of slavery has been introduced into the nation of Israel. See, Solomon is going to be this incredible builder of infrastructure, not just the temple, but all kinds of building projects will happen in his reign. 
But the tragedy is the way he does that is he enforces labor, servitude, onto the people of Israel. They had never been in a position of slavery except way back in the land of Israel, and now Solomon does that. Solomon enacts forced labor in a way that's incredibly detrimental to who Israel is as the people of God. And you look down and you realize that even at the very beginning of his reign, as Solomon is beginning to do some amazing things, he's making a decision, a compromise, a block that's taken out from the stable life that he seems to have. But then there's something else, the very next verse, verse 7 of 1 Kings 4. Solomon had 12 district governors over all Israel who provided or supplied provisions for the king and the royal household, and each one had to provide supplies for one month in the year. So Solomon sets up this really uh, powerful government system where everyone in Israel is having to supply the king with food and supplies and oxen, or whatever, for one month of the year. And again, the the writer's written this so skillfully, because if you go back to the very beginning of the story of the kings, before King Saul becomes king, and the people come in 1 Samuel to speak to the prophet Samuel, and they say, we want to have a king. The prophet Samuel warns them, if you have a king, the king will take your crops, and take your food, and take your land, and take your daughters to be servants, and your sons to be soldiers. And the people said, we don't care, we just want a king. And verse 7 shows us this is exactly what Solomon is doing. Now Solomon is going to become incredibly wealthy, and yet it seems that he continues to tax and take from the people all the way through his reign. It's almost a sense of of greed here in his life. There's the sense that he's compromising in the way that he's dealing with the people of Israel. But then you, you go even just a little further in this very chapter, and it's not just compromise. It's straight out disobedience. Chapter 4, verse 26, Solomon, it says, had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Now you think, wow, that's a lot of horses. But the problem is that the king was never meant to have that. In the intro video that we watched, and in these intro videos that are just brilliant to this series, it talks about something called the law of the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Before Moses had even died and the people had entered into the promised land, Moses had made it clear in Deuteronomy 17 that one day they would have future kings. And there were three specific commands that Moses gave for the kings that they were never to do. The first one was that were not to accumulate horses and chariots. Why? Because horses and chariots represented a standing army. And what God did not want the people of Israel to do, nor their kings, was to put their trust in the size of their army. Instead, Yahweh wanted them to trust in him as their God as they walked faithfully with him. And yet here we find at the very beginning of his reign, Solomon is now deliberately disobeying the word of God. And he is choosing now to have horses and chariots when Yahweh made it clear that he was not to do that. It's one more compromise, one more decision, one more brick out of Solomon's life. And then we come to the building of the temple. 
this middle part of his life, this huge privilege that his dad would have given his back teeth to be able to do. And in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, you have the, this remarkable story of the building of the temple. And right in the middle of it, the author of Kings just puts another note of compromise. Because here's what you read at the end of First Kings chapter 6, verse 37. The foundation of the temple of Yahweh was laid in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, the month of Ziv. And then in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its detail according to its specifications. And the narrator notes, he had spent seven years building it. And then there's a chapter division, but there were no chapter divisions originally. What you went on to read, the very next sentence says, It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his temple. Sorry, of his palace. Now, what's fascinating is when you read Kings carefully, what you work out is that Solomon spent seven years building the temple, and it was only after the temple was built that he then built his palaces. So chronologically, that verse, chapter 7, verse 1, should really come up in chapter 9. That's where it appears chronologically. But the writer has brought that into the middle of the story of Solomon building the temple to show this dramatic contrast. Solomon spends seven years on the temple of Yahweh and 13 years on his own palaces. And what the writer is trying to show here is, is this imbalance in Solomon's priorities. Sure, he built the temple first, that's great. But he spends twice as many years, twice as much energy, probably twice the cost in building this vast array of palaces for himself and his wives and his own comfort and glory. And there's something that's out here the narrator wants us to see. That, that this guy is making decision after decision and compromise after compromise that is weakening the structure of his life. And then you come to chapters 9 and 10, where Solomon was getting this growing reputation and prestige towards the end of his life and wealth. He is oozing wealth. It's not just um, gold faucets in the bathroom. It's almost liquid gold dripping out of it. There is gold everywhere in his kingdom. But there's a huge problem with that as well. Uh, one commentator, Ian Provain, describes the problem this way, in the way that the story is told to us. He says, what's striking about 1 Kings 9 and 10, when compared to chapters 4 and 5, is the manner in which the author goes out of his way in 4 and 5 to emphasize that the prosperity of the king was shared with his subjects. But this is a theme that is noticeable for its absence, he says, in chapters 9 and 10. In the later part of his reign, all of the emphasis is on the luxury of the royal court. It's not being shared with the people anymore. God may well, Provain says, have given Solomon riches, but has he used them wisely? See, Solomon's life was a story of privilege and grace, but it was dismantled by all of these decisions and compromises that he makes. Until finally you come to 1 Kings chapter 11. It's the last chapter of his life. It's the end of his story. And here's what you read. Chapter 11 verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, 
Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from the nations about which Yahweh had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. It's not that Yahweh was opposed to marrying people from outside the nation of Israel, but they needed to be followers of Yahweh. Just like in Solomon's own family tree, the beautiful story of the Moabites Ruth that's found in our Bibles. So intermarriage with people from other nations who embraced Yahweh was fine, but not if they did not become a follower of Yahweh. But then it says at the end of verse 2, Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. There's almost a stubbornness in the way that that sentence is written. He knew that God had said, do not marry people who do not share your faith. Do not marry women from these other nations who worship other gods. And Solomon doesn't care. Verse 3, he, held, he had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, which means wives of common birth. And his wives, it says, led him astray. It's tragic. You go back to the story, uh, the, the law of the king, sorry, in Deuteronomy 17 that we talked about earlier. And I'd said there were three specific things that the kings were never to do. They were not to accumulate horses and chariots. They were not to accumulate vast wealth and hordes of gold. And they were not to accumulate multiple wives. And Solomon deliberately broke all three of those commands. And so it goes on in 1 Kings 11, verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to Yahweh, his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Verse 6, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He did not follow Yahweh completely as his father David had done. That's Solomon's epitaph. That's, that's what could have been etched on Solomon's gravestone. He did evil in the eyes of Yahweh and did not follow him. It's a tragic end to a life of grace and privilege that promised so much. But through the series of poor decisions and small compromises, Solomon's life ends up falling apart. And you read this in verses 7 and 8. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. I'd never seen this before I started prepping for this message. But do you know what the hill to the east of Jerusalem is? It's the famous Mount of Olives. So on the temple mount, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, Solomon had built a temple for Yahweh. And now at the end of his life, on the neighboring Mount of Olives, he builds a temple to Chemosh and Molech, two false gods that, among other things, demanded child sacrifice in their worship. And Solomon ends up as a worshipper of these false gods. And it's one final decision that brings his whole life tumbling down. 
The tragedy of Solomon's life is that this is not what he intended. If you'd asked a young Solomon at the beginning of his 40-year reign, is this what what you want your life to be like? Is this what you're planning to do as the king of Israel? He would have said never in a thousand years. But the problem is this is the way that Solomon's life ended up. Not because he chose to go here, but because he compromised time and again through his life. You may have heard the principle of a a sailboat leaving a port like Auckland and setting sail due north. But something may be wrong with the compass settings or the instrumentation on that boat, which means it's just off by one or two degrees. Now, as it leaves Auckland and sails what it thinks is due north, to begin with, they're one to two degrees. It means nothing. It's only a few meters off track. But by the time they've sailed for days and they've headed north and they've made their way past the equator into the northern Pacific, that boat would end up being hundreds of miles off course. And that's the problem with with compromise. It's the problem with the way Solomon chose to live his life. In and of themselves, many of those early decisions in his life may not have been big things, but these little decisions that were one to two degrees off ended up at the end of his life, meaning he had sailed way off course. And you know what? You and I can be tempted to do the same as well. We can be tempted to compromise, for example, in the area of honesty. We begin to just exaggerate the truth a little bit, just tell a little white lie here and there, and and slowly over time we begin to build this this web of, of not completely telling the truth. And we may never intend it to be this way, but we end up living a life down the track where people can't trust our word as people of integrity. Or we can compromise in the the area of of, of romance. We begin a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend and it's wonderful and we have this commitment to, to sexual purity and everything else and we have some boundary lines we draw in our relationship. But over time, we just get a little bit closer and a little bit closer and step over the line just a touch and a touch more. And we've lost our virginity. A few years later, we're living together and our whole ethic has been compromised. We can compromise in the area of biblical truth. Living in a society now that's increasingly turning its back on what the Bible teaches. And it can be so tempting to just just fudge it a little bit, just move a degree or two, just to fit in a little bit more to the culture around us instead of holding fast to what the Word of God teaches us. And over time, it may just feel like it's a little change. It's a little move. But down the line, that could lead us so far off course. And so I guess the question I want to ask us as we finish this life of Solomon today, is there any areas in your life right now where you're tempted to make small compromises and poor decisions that while you may not ever uh, intend it to happen, could mean that your life ends up falling apart. So how do we avoid this? It's pretty simple, really. It's godly wisdom that prevents small compromises dismantling our lives. It's godly wisdom that prevents small compromises from dismantling our lives. And you may say, well, hold on, didn't Solomon have wisdom? Well, he was given wisdom and knowledge, but he didn't live by that through his life. See, ironically, it's Solomon, actually, in the book of Proverbs who wrote these words. 
The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then later on, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now that doesn't mean we just start out with a fear or even better, an awe of Yahweh. It means we live life, our whole life, in awe of him. One of my favorite seminary professors, Dr. Ron Allen, writes these words. This phrase is not saying that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning as though that's simply the first step. Rather, he says, the concept of fearing Yahweh is the principle that permeates everything in biblical wisdom. In other words, a person could do everything else in the book of Proverbs. But if they do not fear Yahweh, they are not biblically wise. It's the organizing principle of life. You see, and that was Solomon. Solomon had a lot of things going for him. But he did not live his life, his whole life, in the fear and awe of Yahweh. What about you and me? Are we walking with God? Do we display the heart for God that, that Solomon's da uh, father David did? Are we in awe of God and wanting to live with him and walk with him right through our lives? Or are we tempted to just go one or two degrees off course and in poor decisions and small compromises dismantle our lives in a way that we would never think possible. That's the challenge of the life of Solomon. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.